0: Hi. I'm Kyle Lawson, co-founder of Soil Centric, a nonprofit for action organization designed to accelerate engagement in regenerative agriculture. We're here to answer the question, now what? We've developed a tool that shows you opportunities available in regenerative farming, ranching, and ecosystem restoration so you can take action. Whether that's buying directly from a regenerative ranch, finding an opportunity on a regenerative farm, or developing a relationship with the land where you live. You can find us at Soilcentric.org. Thanks, and enjoy the show.
1: Regenerative agriculture, at its broadest, is a system that works to support life in the soil and above ground.
0: The movement around regeneration is evolving and energetic. It needs people to help shape and define it.
1: My name's Morgan. I'm a journalist.
0: And I'm Kyle, technical and creative director of Soilcentric.
1: This is Unconventional Paths, a new podcast by Soil Centric that's investigating the many ways to take part in the regenerative agriculture movement.
0: We're interviewing people about their journeys into agriculture, the opportunities they're discovering and forging, the problems they're navigating, and how they're growing a more inclusive movement.
1: Today we're interviewing Courtney Brown a community composter and climate policy advocate.
2: If we protect air and we protect water, the third of that trinity is soil. Why are we not protecting soil at the same rate? So this is the third and I would say completing of the holy trinity for life on earth.
0: We're stoked to talk to Courtney because over her career, she's cycled through many phases of hyper-local programs and broader policy work. She gets her hands dirty in a community project and then uses that experience to help craft legislation.
1: We talk with her about how food waste is actually an enormously undervalued resource for our community, the Sri Lankan composting system that made her fall in love with worms, and how every backyard can participate in mitigating climate change. Hey, Courtney. Thanks so much for joining Kyle and I today. We are
2: so excited to talk to you. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for having me. So
1: you actually own a business in the community composting industry. Can you tell us a little bit about Common Compost?
2: So I'm the founder and director of Common Compost. Uh, We're based out of Oakland, California, but we work in several cities in Alameda County, San Francisco County, and we're located as far south now as Santa Barbara County and Los Angeles County. The premise of Common Compost was that it isn't about one person or one composter, but that we were trying to create a resource that could be used by any composter to make whatever project or process they were doing easier for them. On our very outdated website, it basically says we're a sustainable food service uh, resource recovery provider in the Bay Area. Um, but that was our original idea, which has metamorphosed many times over in the last five years. In that process of doing all of those pivots, um, we've kind of uh, come out as a front runner in uh, worm bin manufacturers, which was never my original intention.
1: So worm bins, meaning bins for vermicomposting, which is the process of composting using worms, you're not just dropping off boxes, though, and saying, good luck. What What's your relationship with clients like?
2: So when we build a bin, we don't just build a bin, sell it, and ship it off. We actually deliver it to the site. We get it up and running. We train everybody on how to properly vermicompost. And then we provide them with the tools for continued education for anybody they engage with this bin as well as additional funding for further public education. So we mostly provide the worm bins in tandem with local foundations or local grant programs or uh, working directly with schools and school districts. So they have a much farther reach and um, deeper support than just a worm bin with a manual.
1: So in addition to owning a business, You also work in policy, and uh, you're a policy advocate, and you're helping to create policy. Um, You are an environmentalist. You're a maker. You're a maker. What are you most focused on right now?
2: Right now, specifically, I feel that the task that I am being called to has a lot more to do with policy and advocacy as we Shape the compost industry that we really want to see, um, both at the local level and at the larger scale, the state and at the federal level. Um, So, a lot of my background has brought me to this critical moment. But if I were to look at my day to day activities, it is doing what every other community composter is doing, uh, which is collecting food scraps and turning them into very high quality compost and distributing that to uh, my community.
0: Cool. Um, Can you just give us a breakdown of what community compost means?
2: Community composting can range from anywhere between an individual doing it at home, most commonly referred to as backyard composting, or a more uh, community-based organization uh, managing their own waste on site. So these are community centers, churches. And then you have the work that's going a little bit um, more hub or regional level um, with community gardens where they have multiple members, they have multiple waste generators, and they're combining all of these ingredients to produce compost that not only can be used on site, but also can be distributed back to that same community. So different kind of levels of what a community composter could actually be, Um, either yourself as an individual or um, more organized community arrangements um, between sharing uh, materials in this resource recovery process.
0: You don't like to say food waste. So what do you what do you say?
2: Organics. Organics recovery. So it's a resource recovery industry.
0: Resource recovery. Okay.
2: Yeah, just eliminating waste completely from our vocabulary.
1: So on the flip side of community composting is uh, municipal scale composting or industrial composting. Can you talk about that system and what that looks like a little bit?
2: That is uh, it's a really large question. I'll try to break it down into several important parts. Um, the first is that you will have a state-level planning process which creates laws and policies around how to manage organic waste. It's basically setting a landfill waste diversion mandate. Each local municipality has to enact a program to help the state reach its state-level goals. In that, they can set their own general plans and their own waste diversion targets. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second part is uh, very tied to food recovery, edible food recovery, which was realizing that a large portion of food waste in the waste stream is still edible. Um, So combining that with first feeding people um, and then feeding the soil.
1: I realize there's many levels to this next question, but if... On a municipal scale, composting is happening. Why is it important for there to be a community composting or micro-composting system that's also in place?
2: Community composters didn't start or get motivated to do the work that they did because we were worried about a capacity issue. We were really worried about a quality of compost issue. Our initial uh, passions are... Just like, uh, say, a beer brewer or a sun-grown cannabis farmer is that we want to create craft compost, the best quality compost that we can with the resources that are given to it. We pay a very large attention to source separation, to contamination levels, and because we are dealing with this at a small scale, we're more able to manage contaminants as well as the quality. Um, so-, so it's like artisanal compost, Yeah, exactly. It's artisanal compost, craft compost, uh, whatever you want to call it. Our motivations were to control the process so that we know what is in the final product.
1: Okay, so when you were telling us about the community compost model, you talked about it being a resource and it staying in the community and then compost being redistributed back to the community. Why is it important for? organics to stay within a community
2: in the end whether you're at the large scale or you're at the small scale your compost needs a buyer um, and right now a lot of those buyers are large-scale agribusiness um, in the state of california and the central valley and the breadbasket for the rest of the united states of america but what we're realizing is that Compost has a lot more benefits than just for agricultural production and for cash crops. That uh, applying it to rangelands, as well as in agriculture, is also good for soil health. And soil health, healthier soil, leads to um, its ability to draw down carbon from the atmosphere and hold it there, often referred to as carbon sequestration. So What we're seeing is that the benefit of buying compost and applying compost could actually be at the municipal and the jurisdiction level. We're realizing that a person's backyard is an incredible carbon sink if properly managed, um, and small amounts of applications of compost, even if not for growing food, do help with the whole carbon drawdown movement. So, one individual person's actions at this very small level can actually add up to make huge differences
1: what would it look like if a municipality was required to bring to buy back compost to keep that resource in the community what would they do with it too
2: In a lot of the legislation and policy that's being passed, there are procurement clauses where municipalities need to actually buy back a lot of the compost that they're producing, and they need to apply it to public open green spaces and to make it accessible to the communities who are involved in community agriculture or urban agriculture. Um, So you can see a lot of that conversation now changing towards to support the carbon drawdown capacity in California. Um, so you're going to see in the future compost being used for a lot more other things than just food production.
1: There must be some kind of job component to this also.
2: One of the benefits um, which we have been able to communicate as community composters have become more well organized in the state of California is that composting creates jobs. Um, and the more local you keep any business, the more local those jobs stay as well. Um, So composting locally creates local green jobs. Uh, Pretty simple equation. Uh, But it also uh, really helps to have the soil in urban areas perform the miracles that we're going to need in the coming decades and this is basically that five out of eight people will live in cities by the year 2035. And a lot of those people will be located in food scarce um, or food insecure areas, uh, often referred to as food deserts. Um, and so, in a way to kind of be prescriptive and to stay on top of that issue, is to start healing the soil now um, so that it actually can provide the nutrient capacity to increase crop yields and feed the millions of people um, that are going to be, uh, 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 who would otherwise become food insecure um, in the decades to come.
0: Thank you very much for that. That that was really helpful illustration. Kind of extending that out a little bit um, into the future, what ways, including compost, what ways do you see folks being able to participate their shared food economies or within the regenerative agriculture space within an urban setting going going forward?
2: Mm. So that question actually would lead me back to land access more than it leads me back to compost or to healthy soil. There is a lot of incentive-based policy programs coming out right now to help improve that imbalance. I think the uh, biggest barriers right now are, in, especially at the local level and in cities, is uh, zoning ordinances, um, which limit the type of activities you can do in a type of residential, commercial, or industrial zone. And then on top of that, who has the resources to purchase the space needed to actually conduct activities that are attached to composting? Of course, when people think about compost, they think about odor, smells, flies, rats. Um, but the truth of it is, if a well—if you have a well-managed compost pile, it's going to smell as delicious as the forest floor.
0: I—I uh, I can confirm that it does smell like the forest floor when you compost properly, because I got to visit one of Courtney's amazing vermicomposters and uh, got to stick my head in it, and it is—it um, was quite enjoyable. <laughs>
1: So where did you grow
2: up? I grew up in Cumberland, Maine, which is a really small town north of Portland, and uh, was real kind of farm-based life. Uh, We had chickens and goats and sheep and a big garden. So farm-fresh, goat-milk-fed children. We had a a large plot of land um, where we could go hiking and cross-country skiing and camping. So that my connection growing up in Maine um, with nature is more important to where I am today than mm-hmm. than per se that that, that was a um, self substance farm. I don't know how you would refer to it because um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a commercial farm. The flip side of that is it takes a lot of time to manage a large piece of property in a rural area in Maine, and especially through the winters. I would say that it instilled a work ethic in me that rain or shine or hail or blizzard you need to get this job done because it's closer tied to your survival
1: well we know that work ethic carried you pretty far uh to fast forward a little bit you studied international affairs in undergrad and you went on to get a master's in climate change policy and after your master's you had a fellowship with the asia foundation which brought you to southeast asia a lot you were doing a lot of work over there How did you get from working in policy in Southeast Asia to owning your own Bay Area based composting business?
2: So that was a junior research associate fellowship position at the Asia Foundation in Washington, D.C., And they were wanting to look at how women could be engaged as agents of change in the environmental movement and also in climate change adaptation programs better than they were currently doing. But that is really more than anything what's affected my current trajectory, is the work that I did with that fellowship and just understanding how climate change policy affects climate change programming. So spending time with the Asia Foundation on the adaptation side, of this made me realize there is a whole other important component, which is mitigation. And this is just really kind of the political pressure in this area is really gaining momentum. And I wanted to flip over to that.
0: Courtney, I would love a really quick explanation. What's the difference between adaptation and mitigation?
2: Yeah, so climate change adaptation is basically what are communities going to have to do to adapt to the um, increased uh, storm intensity of storms to sea level rise to food insecurity and the myriad of other prog- uh, problems caused by climate change
1: and mitigation, and mitigation
2: which is the whole um, movement of keeping the parts per million of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere to a livable level, um, as determined by a consensus of scientists uh, and activities that we can do to mitigate adding any additional levels of CO2.
0: Cool. Okay. Um so at the Asia Foundation, you were doing a lot of work on the adaptation side. How did that go?
2: It's basically there's only so much you can tell a community about how they're going to have to adapt before that community comes back and asks, how do we prevent this? Is there any way we don't have to spend millions of dollars on a seawall? What is the rest of the community who are the global community, that is, who are the largest um, polluters or contributors to CO2 in the atmosphere? And what are they doing to adapt or stop this process?
1: So clearly a composting business is on the mitigation side of things versus the adaptation, which is what you were working at the Asia Foundation. Why worms, though? Why did worms sort of capture your interest and drive your business model?
2: For starters, it's because worms have five hearts and they love the soil more than a human ever could.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.
2: Final answer.
0: <laughs> and that's that's the common compost uh, uh, holiday card that you'll get.
2: <laughs> no, that's actually going to be merry, um, bright, and worm wishes to you this holiday season. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh shoot we have not been setting you up for enough worm puns
1: is that why you can can you cut a worm in half <sighs> and it forms two new worms okay is, or is that uh if anybody listening to this legend.
2: podcast walks away with any information that i have said today if you cut a worm in half the worm will die so know that you are harming worms when you perform this experiment <laughs>
0: morgan we asked courtney about why worms we got some good stuff but i don't think we really got through the whole answer do you think we got it
1: no i don't think we did either but courtney can you tell us about how you discovered worms at the asia foundation because i believe it was there that you sort of had a a moment or an experience that sort of changed the rest of your career
2: after i finished my political research for them i was hired into the environment program in their san francisco office which is their headquarters so one of those projects actually took me to sri lanka and one of the major environmental issues that they uh, were focusing on improving is waste management they're a small island nation um And of course, they can't afford to ship their waste other places. So they had to be really resourceful in how they um, managed it, but mostly how they recovered it. So I visited a landfill for the first time in my life. And then right next to the landfill, they had a large-scale vermicompost operation. And never even thought about composting with worms. So this is my first introduction to that. But we were really quickly told that this is for organic waste versus a landfill is for solid waste. And it wasn't for reasons that um, you would think in a developed world context, we do it because it's the right thing for the environment because we have the finances to fund source separation and the facilities to do it. For them, they were trying to keep Monsanto out of Sri Lanka banana plantations and they needed access to high quality compost to keep their soil healthy so they could sustain their indigenous banana varietal. So they were source separating wastewater, toilet paper, and human poop from Colombo out and processing it with worms who produce a real nutrient dense humus that, if sprayed or land applied uh, to these banana plantations, actually helped uh, their crop yields helped with disease suppression and with drought tolerance. Cool. Um, and so they were doing it to create their own soil on us on an island nation. Um, so they weren't dependent on a corporation or outside influence for their own banana cash crops.
1: So it was about maintaining power over their own land and their crops.
2: It was just a really interesting motivation for source separating waste. Really quickly, I was sold on the power of worms. Worms eat poop. Worms eat toilet paper. Worms eat what?
1: And poop out of humus.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was telling my roommate about how cool worms were. And I said I wanted to start composting at home with worms just to see how easy it was. If it was smelly or whatever, would she be interested in experimenting with me? She was a real easy sell. Before long, we were up and running with a stackable Vermihut, uh bought off of Amazon, all plastic, and all of that is against, um, I would say, where I am mentally in worm composting now. but
1: Okay, you had to start somewhere.
2: Yeah, that's the. it's an accessible at-home bin you can buy easily on the internet.
1: How do you go from, yay, worms are cool, this is a fun thing I'm doing in my kitchen, to quitting your job and shifting your whole career focus to worms?
2: Part of it is timing um, and part of it is soul searching. The whole idea of Common Compost began with a heart-to-heart conversation with a family member sitting out on my back stairwell who was looking into my worm bin and was equally amazed at what was happening in there. And I said... So what I've been really starting to look into is how I could bring this solution to scale in my own community. And one thing that I always kind of struggled with in the international development community was to spend a lot of my time, my resources outside of my country, outside of my own community. Mm -hmm. I was always asked the question, so what do you do for your own community? What do you do for your own community? And it was just really hard for me to answer anything let alone honestly so instead of it having to be like a fun side project or a hobby i uh, decided to participate in a global conference it's called living the new economy that was in um, t- uh, 2014 they held it in oakland california so this is kind of think pioneers. Um, these are forward-thinking mm uh uh organizations, social enterprises, um and investors, social impact investors that all come together and are looking for new innovative solutions.
1: So what I think is amazing is that you went into this conference with an idea that is actually improving an existing system. So San Francisco, the Bay Area where you live, actually picks up compost already. But it's industrial-sized, municipal-sized compost system that isn't necessarily the most beneficial. Or you were saying this isn't the most beneficial way to deal with this resource.
2: So, you know, part of what I wanted to show people through that first presentation was exactly what you're saying, is that first, when you have a good business, you have a need. And so this was a community need. We don't have access to clean soil. If we want good soil, we have to pay for it. Yes, we can get free soil or compost from the city, but it's a very low quality. How do we solve this process? And me asking, why is this even a problem? We have all of the resources we're creating. We're just maybe not managing them as effectively. So Can I design a social cooperative that helps use these sort of resources more communally? And then taking the next deeper dive, which says this is actually one hell of an important resource. If we protect air and we protect water, the third of that trinity is soil. Why are we not protecting soil at the same rate? So this is the third and um, I would say completing of the Holy Trinity for life on Earth. Um, cool, yeah. Oh yeah, so I won the hackathon and I quit my job the next day. Did you really? Yeah, I was out. I got. You,
0: see, wait, so you won the hackathon? and You literally were like, "All right, here's my here's my two weeks."
2: Um, I yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so basically, they give you um, free legal support. Um, There was discounted office space rentals um, and some seed funding for your project. So it was an opportunity that was good enough to say, I can invest in this even if this idea doesn't work out at no real cost or expense to myself. And I have other skills I can do to bring in some salary in the meantime.
1: Did you have a desire to start your own business? Did you want to be an entrepreneur before this? Was that idea attractive or was it like... Well, I have this great idea that I'm super committed to, so I guess I'm going to be a business owner now.
2: Again, it's not really a business. It's more of a social enterprise, so I just look at it different. I never wanted to start something where I make money, um, but I wanted to start something where I empower my community for sure. And so this is a program that does that. So I've always looked at it more as a program than as a business.
0: Mm -hmm. That's so cool.
1: What have been some of the biggest resources Human or otherwise, that have helped you along your path?
2: In this particular endeavor, um, it's been two specific people. Um, The first is Janelle Orsi, who's the founder and executive director of the Sustainable Economies Law Center. She was the attorney on duty at the hackathon that I sat and met with, but she followed up with me and I followed up with her. So we got together and we created a a soil policy team in Oakland. Um, So what turned into a mentorship actually turned into a colleague. Um, And in 2018, I was hired by them, um, became on as a staff consultant uh, for compost policy and law. Um, And through uh, working with Janelle, I met, um, I was sent to the uh, U.S. uh, Composting Council to give a talk on compost law. And I met Brenda Platt, who is the executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, who runs the Community Compost Coalition. Brenda is a guru in all things compost, um, especially compost policy. And she's been at this a lot longer, decades longer than I have. And so when we bring up an idea of something that we would like to push or an agenda that we'd like to explore in California, she's a real great sounding board for, we tried that before, this is what happened. Or they weren't ready for it yet, maybe the policy window is now. Or in these certain circumstances, mm-hmm. we find incentive-based regulations work better than, say, X, Y, and Z. So she's always someone that I go to. Um, She is now actually officially uh, um, sitting on our board of advisors for this CalRecycle Grant Program.
1: So you just mentioned the CalRecycle Grant Program, and that's happening in conjunction with the rollout of a state bill that's aimed to reduce methane emissions and compost and composters are playing a big role in that and I was hoping you could tell us um, from the policy aspect the policy work that you've done to help make sure that community composters are a part of the conversation moving forward.
2: In January 2017, we formulated an alliance of these independent actors specifically for political advocacy. And that was because the State Bill 1383 was uh, in the rulemaking phase and CalRecycle, uh, California Department of Resources and Recovery, CalRecycle, was tasked with administering the law SB 1383. And in their regulations, they were not even looking at a small scale stakeholders as playing a part in this game. Hmm. Um, So we were um, really just empowering local composters all around the state to have a voice and collectively to have an even louder voice.
1: And you really saw the need for this collective bargaining power since on your own, as the owner of Common Compost, you kept running into legal barriers. Correct. Right? Correct.
0: That's so cool. Okay. So that boots on the ground experience of being like, this isn't working. We need to change policy. or We need to make sure that small scale producers are protected going forward so that other people aren't going to keep banging their heads against this.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the um, stakeholder feedback that we submitted to that process was done on behalf of the California Alliance for Community Composting. So it had the voices of 14 organizations that were actually working on the ground. So
1: you are one of three co-directors or co-coordinators for the Cal Recycle Grant Program, which is helping this emissions reducing bill be implemented across the state of California. And through that grant, you're going to be looking for community composting projects to help support. What will be the qualifications to get support?
2: We're basically gonna run three rounds of a solicitation process beginning in mid-September through the end of December, 2020. And we're gonna be looking for projects who are not established at all, just someone who could wake up tomorrow and say I have a really good idea of starting a project in my community. So we have proposed 50 community composting sites will be built out under um, these funds and we will support 23 part-time paid positions for 24 months over the course of the grant program. And we will spend a significant amount of money on creating a training curriculum, providing a training program and certifying these sites and providing them with social entrepreneurship skills so that they can maintain these sites after the life of this project is over.
1: What I think is really cool about your whole story is that you're asking society to reevaluate where it holds compost and what it how it values soil. And just through that, you're making us think about resources in a completely new way.
2: Right. The whole thing is designed right now to be a race to the bottom. It's bigger, faster, cheaper. Um, And we are really looking at a natural resource here, which is contingent upon life on earth. So we have to be a race to the top who can produce the best quality resource and not who can produce it at the cheapest cost. Um, So I think just to get to the industry to become a race to the top, um, we're gonna need to not only diversify it, but really start to ask real questions about the true economic cost of running programs in a linear way like they are now.
0: Thanks so much to Courtney Brown for talking with us about her journey. Check out the resources that help Courtney uncover her path to regeneration at soilcentric.org guides. You can also learn about opportunities to get involved with composting or gardening in your area by going to soilcentric.org slash explore regeneration.
1: This episode was produced by us, Morgan Levy and Kyle Lawson. Diana Donlin is the executive producer. Thanks to the Climate Emergency Fund for supporting this podcast.
0: Our theme music is by Mestizo Beat. Stay tuned for the next episode of Soil Centric's Unconventional Paths.